Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. Uh, this is the show where I answer your questions. Well, I answer your questions if you support us on Patreon. Um, I definitely answer your questions. If you don't support us on Patreon, then you can, oh, and you're in YouTube, you can always put a um, a question through the super chat as well. But we've got an absolute buttload of questions. Um, there's no cricket on now, so people are thinking about cricket more. And I know that doesn't make any sense, but that does appear to be how this channel works uh so thank you to everyone uh for that so let's start with manon who says just watch your baseball cricket video and was wondering what are the most easily translated skills and what are the furthest away um i think the easiest thing to tr- between baseball and cricket is the throwing um i think that makes the most sense obviously the fielding is marginally different i, I so i did another episode um uh with kylie mcdaniel about uh Arjun Namala, and the only position that I think is very, very is marginally similar when it comes to fielding is the um, the shortstop position, and even then, it's still different. But it's I think it is a bit closer than some of the others, of course, uh, from that perspective. So I do think from that uh, I do think in that way that that one is similar. But you're still wearing a glove. I think the hand skills are similar, but you would have to be. I I think the only way that being uh, sorry hand skills for pitching is similar but i think the only way it would work is if you're someone like bart king or benny howe who can already bowl and you can pitch at the same time and you can you know interchange those so i i don't think if you're a pitcher you would necessarily be a good bowler just because it's so alien um, but if you already have those skills the actual skills from pitching the way that you grip the ball and also some of the skills from cricket bowling would would help quite a bit i think in pitching from that perspective and i suppose the power side of it but you know the biggest problem and I, I was reading up about this and i'm trying to remember who it was i think there was a game between baseballs and cricketers um it might have been the marcus Triscothic game when he had when he had a game between the two uh, for his benefit i think this is right and the biggest problem was that when the way that cricketers hit when they actually try and hit the ball in the air it pops up and they have a lot of trouble finding that. And I think that might change in the future because if you look at the way that Josh Butler bats um, and, you know, Jason Roy and these sorts of guys, the way they hit is probably a bit more similar to the baseball style. But I think traditionally the way that we sort of hit through the ball is very up up uh, when we're trying to um, get the, 
get uh, get it lofted. It's very different to the way that baseballs hit through it. So, yeah, I, I mean, th- look, there are certainly things there. I think there are just things that I think you can learn more from baseball than you probably can from most sports for cricket. But I don't think there's any sport that really cricket shouldn't be trying to learn from. Sandip says, what's your schedule for the coming months? Any series you're covering? Can we expect World Cup-related work? Yeah, so the World Cup will be the big one. Don't know. It's a very good question to ask me what I'm doing between now and the World Cup. We've got a, a bunch of big video projects that I've been working on for a while. Um, not all of them are cricket, but there's obviously a lot of cricket in there as well. So we've got a big video on Vinu Mancad uh, that we're working on, a big one on all the spinners since Shane Warne. Uh, what else have I got? Uh, the Wobble Ball video I've been working on for two years. Um, uh, there's one on Best. Oh, oh, no, actually, that one might come later. Um, and then there's a lot of World Cup content um, that we'll be looking at between now and then. I'm not sh- I've got some commentary work on England, New Zealand, but I don't think I have that much other uh, work. So I thought what I was going to do is spend the next little while, um, uh, there's some stuff on the podcasts um that we're doing as well um you know there might be a new podcast series starting very very soon um you know so from that perspective we've got a few other things coming through uh but yeah the idea is to get out as many really good video essays and work on a bunch but also have all of our world cup content sorted so there'll be video essays throughout the world cup and there'll also be the world cup mood board i don't know where i'm going to be and who i'm going to be working for during the world cup it might actually be in india for some of it um uh, it's also possible i'm working for another company um from somewhere else for some of it so i'm trying to plan as many of the video essays ahead of time so that's the main thing there's just a lot of big projects that i've had on my books for so long that i haven't got to so i've since we started this channel and we came up with the idea of, you know, making these video essays. The first thing I wanted to make was the Vinu Mancat. And it's taken me all this time to get back around to it. So um, it's really doing a lot of projects. Like I've got one on number 11s that I've been working on for years as well. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there um, that I've been just sort of desperate to make. Um, and a lot of it is World Cup dependent as well. So I can't wait to do a bunch of that. Uh, Titia says, you often talk about Fuzzle Mahmood, Murali and Hadley as the premier bowlers who basically one man attacks. Do you think Kapil Dev can be part of the discussion, although not at the same level? When he made his debut, India's spin quartet was finished uh, and it was not until the end of his career that bowls like Srinath and Kumble came along. Yeah, I still, I think the big difference, I'd have to go back through the wickets, um, but I think the big difference is that not only were those other three incredible wicket takers, um, that they were the percentage of wickets they took per game was a lot higher than I would say what Kapil Dev was. Kapil Dev might be on that upper echelon as well. I think his streak is another guy who might have been up there. So there are certainly bowlers um, out 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 there that have done it before. But Fazal Mamu Murali and Hadley are the ones that really stick out from the last time I checked it. Kirtley and Courtney are quite high up as well, even though they're not one man attacks. And you look at the guys. Uh, you look at guys who might average, you know, five five and a half, six wickets a game, you know, compared to say Stuart Broad, who's closer to, you know, four wickets a game. So there's a big difference. And, um, you know, if you're having to bowl, you know, Hadley just had to bowl extraordinarily long um, spells um, because they did, you know, otherwise the pressure would come off, right? And, and I think Kapildev had to do that, but I don't think he quite matches the wickets per game. But I, I'm doing a lot of this off the top of my head. I know those are the three because I've re- researched I don't know Kapildev as well from wickets per game. Ditsu again says, uh, would 
you bracket Virat in the same class as Sachin Dravid Gavaskar when it comes to test match batting? Ooh, uh, yes, not Sachin. Um, maybe not Gavaskar? Dravid's an interesting one. I would have thought Virat would be somewhere around where Dravid dropped. So we're, I don't, because I, I haven't done the full test match ranking. So for those who don't know, you know, working on this massive project of, you know, ranking the top 50 batters of all time in test cricket. I would assume that Dravid is somewhere between 15 and 30, the, the, completely off the top of my head. And that would make sense if Virat was in that range as well. Gavaskar, perhaps a little bit higher than that. And as I said before, Sachin's probably, you know, top three, top five, um, you know, sort of situation. So I, I certainly don't think Virat would go in that, uh, you know, the dip that he's had is just too extreme, really. Not that it's all his fault, but still. Uh, Basball, details versus vibes. Uh, I.e., beyond the initial policy about style, is there a detailed planning behind the scenes to back it up, or is it just all feel on the day? I appreciate that it's a bit more nuanced than that. Look, I think there have been times when the vibes have taken over, but everything I, I believe that they're doing within Basball is, I think the vast majority is very planned and that they are thinking about it. So that was Thomas who asked that question as well. Um, I think they are certainly thinking about it from that perspective of, you know, what are we going to do? And then occasionally it's like, oh, let's just do the most attacking thing possible. So I've done a podcast with Matt Roller that should be up very soon, maybe tomorrow. Um, and it's all about the fact that there is, there is a, no doubt that they have thought about it and that it is evolving, that it is changing and how they're brought across it. So it's not just vibes. I think they go wrong quite often when they go to the vibes. I think they're at their absolute best when they start with a plan, and but they're willing to divert from the plan based on game situations. Sometimes that will be being more attacking and sometimes that will be being more defensive and sometimes it'll be funky and sometimes it'll be boring. I think that's their best way of doing it because at, at a... What they essentially do at the moment is that they score at a level that puts pressure on the opposition and they're very good at chipping away wickets so that they don't have, you know, huge scores um, against them. Those two things are very, very repeatable and should work a lot. If you get too sucked up in the, we're the most attacking, entertaining team in the world, you can destroy what you do well. So I think they have to, they have to keep a bit of that cocoon there because they have to believe in this funky plan. But more important to them is that they just continue to work and develop on the overall plan, especially as teams start to react and, and, and deal with them. James says, how would you expect Sophie Eccleston to get on in men's cricket, assuming she could use a woman's size ball? Um, I think the biggest problem for someone like her is that she doesn't have, she's probably just too slow. I'd have to look at her speeds. But in modern cricket, I would have thought that men can just change the length on her a little bit too quickly and just they're a little bit quicker um, uh, from that perspective. Also, you know, you've, you've got the, the situation of uh, the ability to muscle her back down the ground when she's slightly off length doesn't happen as much in women's cricket just because, you know, uh, women don't hit as many sixes, so they have to be a bit cleverer with how they attack. So those things would definitely bother Sophie Eccleston. Because I, I, I don't know her speeds off the top of my head. I want to say Hypercourse um, needs to be in the comments for this. But um, I want to I say that 
there are certain pitches, maybe, you know, you sort of Bangladesh pitches, or I actually think she'd be quite handy. But I think there'd be a lot of wickets where she wouldn't have, she wouldn't be putting the revolutions on the ball. She wouldn't be getting the bounce um, and she wouldn't b- quite be quick enough uh, to bother people. But at the lower levels of men's cricket, I still think that she would be quite handy. I mean, if you, you, you I remember talking to Holly Colvin and Holly Colvin, nowhere near, sorry, Holly, but nowhere near as good a bowler as Sophie Eccleston. I'm pretty sure Holly Col- Colvin would agree with that as well. But I remember Holly talking to me about bowling two men as a spinner. And a lot of, a lot of the success that she had was the apprehension, right? That I've seen when women play sport against men. That's a big, that's a big thing. That apprehension of, you know, not wanting your, your mates to make fun of you and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's that great moment in softball, uh, where the softball pitcher, whose name I've forgotten, but goes up against the greatest, uh, baseball hitters, um, and they can't hit them. And by the end, the, some of the hitters, you know, and these are like, Hall of Fame baseball hitters refuse to go out and face her, right? And there is that apprehension, um, you know, f- from that perspective. And spin is such a weird thing. I, was, I don't think male cricketers would have the same kind of feeling about going up against, I don't know, Ismail or, you know, um, the, the fast, at least Perry or, you know, the faster bowler. But the spinners, your, your brain works. So it's a, it's a really interesting question. But I don't think she'd be a massive success. Um, f- fantastic in the women's game, now, of course. George says, was watching the 100 yesterday and they were showing the many different variations of Benny Howe. Is there anyone in international cricket at the moment who is similar to him and just the sheer number of different balls he can bowl? No. Uh, there is no one that I'm aware of who has as many deliveries. Uh, I suppose going back, it's really rare for any seam bowler to have more than four slower balls. And with someone like Benny, you're probably talking about, he probably has eight to 14 balls available to him in any game. So even if you were to look at, let's say, Stuart Broad, who can bowl in-swing, out-swing, wobble ball, off-cutter. Did he bowl the knuckleball? Anrik Nokia has about five as well. There's a few guys with maybe about five different deliveries available to them. I might be th- forgetting some that might have six or seven. Um, but Benny Howell is, I mean, he, he talks about having 40 or 50 balls and he talks about them in stages of development. It's not like he can bowl them all in a game. Um, but I've never heard of any bowler having more, more than seven or eight. And it's, you know, the way that Benny's mind works is this, you know, he's always got a ball in front of, in his hand. He's always create, he's a very creative person in that, um, from that perspective. That's not how normal bowlers are, if we're being honest. And Neuron says, what is the easiest position to bat in tests? Many say there's number six. That position requires the batter to either play the second new ball or bat with the tail and rebuild after a collapse. Um, and they have lesser reviews to work with. And number six is by far the easiest position. <laughs> well, I, yeah, no, number, number six is by far the easiest. So if you work it out, the best way to work this out is that a wicket falls about every 10 overs in test match cricket, right? So your first drop comes in at 10 your second drop comes in at 20, your third drop comes in at 30, your fourth drop comes in at 40 overs. So when you're talking about second new ball, the vast majority of times when it, I don't know why I wrote that down. It's like I had to count in tens. Um, the vast majority of um, number sixes are coming in around that 40 to 50 over marker, you know, sometimes slightly before, sometimes slightly after. You're a long way away from the new ball then. You're right in the heart of the ball being soft. The spinners don't have a hard ball. Um, so the, even if you're facing the spinners, it's not turning as quickly. Um, 
there's far less pressure on you than at any other stage. Chances are, so what did I say, 40 over mark. So your main strike bowlers in the opposition, if they're seamers, have already had two spells. Your spinner is probably in the middle of a longish spell. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you've got a couple of spinners um, in the subcontinent, they're probably in the middle of a longish spell. Ball's not spinning as quickly as it was before. It's not bouncing as much. Um, yeah, way better place to bat than anywhere else. It is the dream position. It's why it's used for all rounders, and it's why it's used for young batters coming in because it is just by far the easiest um, to go in. Um, uh, yeah, that, that, the only bit that is tricky, as you said, is batting with the tail. I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for all batters. I never thought that was as hard as other people thought it was. I know we have specialists and there are guys who are absolutely brilliant at it. And we have players who are not particularly brilliant at it. I've never heard of anyone being dropped because they don't play back well with the tail, though. Do you know what I mean? That's not really your job. And some people are just slightly better at it. Um, and I'm not sure that number six, usually at number six, you're batting with the four and the five and the seven and the eight, right? So you're not batting with the you know 9 10 and 11 as often unless you're a great number 6 and then it doesn't matter if you're good at batting with the tail or not because you're a great number 6 so you're already making your team better uh Swami Nathan says my velocity uh, while chatting with Bayram about lack of it is an Indian law order why did you disregard uh, mentioning Shah Rukh Khan um uh, uh in Punjab Kings or Deepak Chahar uh in your opinion, are they no good as batters who can club a ball around or can hit a six? Isn't also Shivan Dubé worth a look? So Shivan Dubé is actually a very good example of what I'm talking about where he's already been moved up the order, right? So you're already seeing a, a situation again where instead of trying to find a guy who's great batting in, in the middle order, um, they're already starting to move him up, right? And you see this sort of thing again and again. Um, and so from that perspective... That's the kind of the issue that I'm talking about. Uh, Shah Rukh Khan uh, had a strike rate of 108 in his second year. Was it 108? Yeah, 108 in his second year. Um, and w again, I think he's if he is really good, he'll get moved up the order again. Um, so I think he struck at 170 or, or so um, in the in the latest year. Um, was it 170 or 175? It was around 170 anyway. Um, that's great. We're going to have to see more of that. But again, I think he will end up being moved up the order, which is I, I, kind of what I'm saying. And who's the other one you said? Deep, Deepak Chahar is exactly the kind of cricketer I think that India needs to create more of. I've talked about him a lot. But you do have to remember um, when I'm doing a podcast like that, Swami Nathan, <laughs> suddenly a question has come up and we are just riffing off, off the top of our head. If you expect me to remember every single player, I'm not going to. But the point is, that if you compare this to other nations, they have multitudes of these players, and I still don't think India does. Uh, where are we? Oh. Neuron says, I heard you talk a lot about the 1998 Oval Test. However, outside of Sri Lanka, this game rarely gets mentioned. Was it a, as important a game in the context of history of cricket? I don't know. <laughs> it's a really interesting game because we see white ball batting in a red ball situation. It's a really interesting game because what Sri Lanka do is go completely against convention and go into it from a, peer, a, a, a cockiness that most teams, especially a team like Sri Lanka, wouldn't normally have. Um, and it obviously builds their reputation in England. 
Yeah, it's a really good question there. And I'm not sure how important that game is in the context of cricket history. But it comes at a really important moment, I think, because it's just before Australia get really aggressive as well. Um, and it also comes at a really important moment in that you have a team who's won a World Cup, but it's not really respected by England, the most important team. So I think there are some very, very interesting parts of that game. Um, I th- in part because it's a one-off game, right? It, it wasn't as, you know, we are we are trained to take series more seriously, right? And so from that point of view, it's it's a weird moment in time. Um, but I do think that, I, I think it certainly has a plot. I think if you were doing, which, you know, Bayram's listening, I might end up, you know, it might be something that we'll do in the future. But I think if you're doing the 20 most interesting test matches of all time, I think this has got a fair play of being in the top 20, right? Like, I really think this is a game that would be hard to overlook. Um, so, yeah, so I, I do think whether that makes it influential or important, I don't know. But it's certainly interesting. Satchmo says, which three fast bowlers would you pick for all-time 11 or would you stack the team with all-rounders? I would probably stack the team with all-rounders because you can get Keith Miller, Imran Khan, Callis Sobers in. I mean, Keith Miller and Imran Khan, you have two, and you can put Sean Pollock there as well as you wanted. Uh, but in, in Keith Miller and Imran Khan, if you look at their peaks, you know, two of the greatest bowlers in cricket anyway, and then you get their batting. Um, and in Callis and Sobers, you know, uh, I, you've got a lot there, and if you throw in Sean Pollock, I just, you've got fast bowling, you've got swing bowling, you've got seam bowling, you've got left arm, you've got a bit of spin with, with Sobers. Um, yeah, so I think that would be my way of doing it. But if you are just asking who my three fast bowlers are, I'm not going to put Sid Barnes in because I think he's a spinner. I think I would go Marshall... Ghana McGrath, but I've got a bit of a Wazim Akram left arm question that I want to pose myself, I think, in that one. Um, also, if you maybe you play Wazim Akram ahead of Ghana because Ghana and McGrath are a little bit redundant, um, but I think that Ghana's the best first change bowler in the history of the sport, and so and I think he's massively underrated, as I've probably said in every podcast I've done. Who else have you got? You got Stain, Lily, Hadley, Truman, maybe. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with the guys I've got. I think. Um, and then obviously we're we're still waiting on, I suppose, Cummins and maybe even Boomerah and Rabada just to see how they go over the next couple of years. Cummins is the only one of that, or maybe Boomerah as well, is the only one where I can really see him making a, a huge play um, at that list. And I I think they're up. They're all a, a step behind, as as great as they all are. Uh, James says, are elite teams looking for players with a specific psychological makeup to fit their team's philosophy? Or are they simply looking for the best players and fitting philosophies around the players they have? Uh, so the England 2010-2011 sort of period was very much about this. They used to do the Myers-Briggs tests, which if you're not aware of, a complete sham of a psychological test. Uh, England was all in on that. They, they absolutely loved it. Um, and... So that was the only team I was aware of that went from that point of view. I do think that Australia, you know, there's many stories of Australia not picking some of their best players because they don't think they are aggressive enough or attacking enough or confident enough. So that has certainly happened before. Um, So I do think that happens. But I think more often what you do is 
you look at the team that you have and you try and fit a philosophy around the team rather than the other way. But there are coaches who have the ability to probably, you know, push in that direction as well. James says, do domestic first-class teams do any kind of specific training for new players to adapt to playing four-day games coming from club cricket where they're playing one- or two-day games? It's a very good question. I don't think so. I would have to ask some coaches because I know this is something I've talked about before where it's a really weird thing. You're 16 and 17, you're probably not playing a lot of two-day or three-day cricket. And then suddenly you sign a contract and you're playing four-day cricket. Um, And if you're any good, you're playing five-day cricket after that, right? I I do think it's a huge jump up and something in our sport we haven't quite factored in. But I would be interested to know. I would say that there are probably within England, Australia, India, South Africa, off the top of my head, there is a little bit of junior academy style three and four day cricket. So there is a, you know, there is something coming up, but it's clearly not as common. And I do think it's an issue um, sometimes in first class cricket. Um, So yeah, no, it is a very good one. I don't know if I have a perfect answer for that, James. But yes, it's something I've thought about before. Anyway, let's take a short break here on Wagon Wheel. I I remain Jared Kimber. And after the break, we'll get to some more questions from the Patreon. Get ready to take charge of your favorite leagues in Wicket Cricket Manager. Control the game, buy and sell players, and train them to victory. Play against friends, strangers, or challenge yourself. With your cricket knowledge, become the master on the pitch of Wicket Cricket Manager. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Your dream home just got a little more real. Bed Bath & Beyond is back with more to love than ever before. At the new Bed Bath & Beyond, you'll find all the products and brands you know with styles for every room and budget, along with a huge selection of furniture and decor, all in one amazing online store. Download the new app today and get a 25% off coupon to celebrate our grand reopening. Plus, get free shipping right to your front door. Welcome to a bigger, better beyond. Uh, welcome back. This is another one from James. He's got a hat trick here. Uh, what makes some deliveries swing later than others? Is there something bowls can control? It's all about uh, the wrist position being absolutely perfect, I believe. Um, and so if you have a flawed wrist position, but the seam is still in the right area, the ball will go earlier. And the idea is if you get your wrist exactly in the right uh, place, it should go straight and then swing. All ball, All balls that swing do swing a little bit out of the hand, though. I think what you're really talking about is the variation. But I believe that's what the, the thinking is, that if you can get your wrist absolutely perfect um, and you're at, while you're swinging it, you then have the ability to get the ball down as far as possible. So they, they call it in baseball, oh, my God, um, do they call it the tube? And I know they're starting to talk about this in cricket a little bit as well. Maybe they call it the barrel in baseball. Of Essentially, what you want the ball to do is break as late as possible, right? And so there is a big part of of getting the ball down as far as possible and then having it break. And I, I think the idea is, certainly last time I talked to any bowlers, was that if your wrist is immaculately behind the ball, you're much more likely to get late swing. 
and if your wrist falls away, but the, the you know the, the the arm and the seam are still in, in roughly the right position, it will swing, but it will swing out of the hand. I, I, as a very, I can bowl out swing, and my outswing always goes out of the hand. I bowl like big boomerang like deliveries, um, and I know that my wrist is never anywhere near the right position. But obviously, I've worked out enough of the other stuff to make it work. So that if that's that logic does hold up in my mind, whether it's correct or not, I don't know. Patrick says, with the news of Steve Smith opening in T20s for Australia, who do you think are the best candidates over the next five years and opinions on Ash Chandra Singh's chances of making it? Um, yeah, I, the Steve Smith thing is interesting because they've got a long time to commit to someone and it feels like they're, they're a cent- <laughs> it feels like they're trying to fit in their best player rather than pick their best team. So I'm a little bit worried about that. Can Mitch Marsh not open? I mean, I would have thought Mitch Marsh and Cameron Green are the, you know, you have David Warner to the World Cup and you have either Mitch Marsh or Cameron Green as your openers. Maybe you don't want Mitch Marsh to open, so Cameron Green makes more sense. Um, and then Mitch Marsh bats at number three. Um, I don't really see the point of Smith as a as a T20 opener for Australia. Um, over the next five years, I'd have to go through it a lot more, Patrick, to really break down. I don't think I've seen trying to think there's some good players out there i'm not sure i've seen anyone who i think is an opener though uh but yeah but uh, but i mean cameron green should be the opener over the next over that next five-year period and then you're probably just looking at one person to play at the other end i don't know if that is mitch marsh or you know what sort of situation you have they've still got marcus stoinis if they want to as well um which gives them a little bit of flexibility um i'm trying to think there's someone else i'm missing who's obvious as well um but yeah uh, Ch- Ch- Ash Singer. look, he's Victorian, so obviously I think he'll make it, um, and he'll be a star. No, he's what's his strike rate? Twenty three. So let's let's just work on how Test cricket works. If you average forty in first class cricket, you're probably going to average between thirty five and thirty seven, right? And I'm talking about in average. If we do the same thing with his strike rate. He's going to have a strike rate of 18 to 20. He just I don't think he can play test cricket with a strike rate of 18 to 20. I think if you cannot get off strike more than once every five balls, I don't I think the best bowlers in the world will just dismiss you. It's not he would have to be BJ Watling or or Craig Brathwaite levels of defense. And it's, I've seen him play. I think he's really good. I'm not quite sure he's at their level and even they score a little bit quicker than that. Um in fact, they score a lot quicker than that. I just, I want him to work. I think he, ha- I think he just has to find. I don't, I don't think he has to strike at much more than thirty-five, right? But he does have to strike at much more. He does have to strike at thirty-five at first-class level to even have a chance of being successful at Test cricket. I actually think it's more important to score sw- slightly quicker at Test cricket than it is in first-class cricket, because quite often in first-class cricket, the bowlers are not genuine strike bowlers. Your genuine strike bowlers usually end up in Test cricket. So in first-class cricket, you will give, I was going to say Tim Murtagh, but Tim Murtagh is too good a bowler. But you will give a really good first-class bowler. Uh, you can face six dot balls of them if you're a, if you're a test-quality batter without too much trouble, right? You probably don't want to give them 12 balls or 18 balls or 24 balls, but you can give them six. I'm not sure you can give Vernon Philander six balls or Mohamed Abbas six balls or Jimmy Anderson six balls or you know Ashwin six balls these sorts of people you have to be able to get off strike at a certain point and I do worry he'll ever be able to do that plus he didn't 
make a lot of runs last year. I think it was last year, wasn't it, where he failed? Um, I can't. He would have to change who he is as a batter to make it. Will says, if England, Ireland, and West Indies broke up into their constant... Uh, into the constituent neighbours, that would create 19 sides. England, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and 15 West Indian teams. Imagine they're all in a T20 league. Who do you think challenges England at the top, and who do you think would be battling to avoid coming last? Oh, my God. Well, there's some terrible West Indian nations. So, I mean, it's it's almost hard to tell you which ones would come last because, you know, even... Even within West Indies cricket, and I don't know how many people know this, but a lot of the islands don't play as themselves, right? They play as a collection of islands, again, you know, the Windward Islands and the Leeward Islands. So if you break those teams up, you're now talking about maybe two players of international quality, maybe three players of first-class quality, um, and a bunch of club cricketers. So there would be a whole bunch of teams that would absolutely be um, struggling. I think Wales, Ireland... Northern Ireland would all be slightly above the worst of those West Indies teams. Not by a massive amount, but certainly. Um, yeah, the, the island, Northern Ireland one's really interesting. I would think that I, you, England obviously is number one, as you said. Then you would have Ireland, Northern Ireland, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana would be the five teams. And I would have Wales probably at the end of that. But I think they would be the five teams that would be the strongest. I suppose, based on recent history, you would have to say either Trini or Barbados, although Guyana has got a lot of good cricketers coming through at the moment. Um, you know, the Bayesian 11s have been really, really good. Oh, that, and Jamaica is not far away as well at times. So, um, okay, this is completely off the top of my head without looking at any details of any of these players. But I would probably, ha- I would probably have England... I don't even know where to rank the two islands. Um, I'd probably have England, Barbados, England, Barbados. Then I would have, they would be, that would be tier one, tier two. And with Barbados, I would probably have the two islands and Guyana and Trinidad. And then I would have Jamaica, Wales, maybe just below that. And then, a lot of random West Indian countries uh, below that would be my guess. Um, I would think Wales is on that level, but maybe maybe I'm being too bullish on Wales in that one. I, I, I'm trying to go through my mind right at the moment to work out which players are Island, uh, Irish and uh, Northern Irish um, to work out who would have the better team at the moment. I think traditionally it would be the Southern Ireland, but of recent times, well, not Southern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, um, but of recent times, I kind of wonder if it's not Northern Ireland. Um, but I, no, I, yeah, I don't know how to separate those two. Will says, enjoyed the uncovered discussion about Indians cricket, Indian cricket's treatment of fans. As India continues to become more affluent, do you think this problem will solve itself by venues realizing that with a bit more organization and care, they could start charging fans more money for tickets? No, because I don't think that there'll ever be enough money in Indian ticket sales to change those kinds of things compared to what they make off TV and streaming and, and sponsors. I don't think you'll ever have a situation where Indian cricket uh, well, Indian society is, I don't know, what would you pay for an NFL ticket? Like 150 quid or 150 US or something like that. Um, what do you pay for a Premier League ticket? Probably, you know, be anywhere between what, 30 and 100 quid. Um, again, depending on the teams, you know, Ashes uh, or top test matches in England are 80 quid. I don't think you're going to get to those kinds of levels 
in India, in, certainly in the short term, not in the next 10 or 15 years. I don't, who knows what India is going to be like in 20 years because I've never seen a society change as quickly and rapidly in so many different directions as India is. Uh, I don't think anyone has. Maybe China, maybe Japan after World War II. We, it's not a thing that we're used to seeing. So I don't know if we can make that sort of a bold assumption. But over the 20 years, I don't think they didn't make enough money for charging tickets to make their stadiums better. It doesn't mean that they won't make their stadiums better and they won't start treating their fans better. But I don't think it will be ticket prices that necessarily do that well. Uh, Vikas says, what's wrong with the BCB? They've made Chucky their captain at least 10 times in the past. He stepped down many times, I think in different formats. Now again, they want him to captain their ODI side at the World Cup. Can't they make someone new their captain, like Litsa Das, uh, who could lead them for a four or five year period? Yeah, I think before the World Cup, I've got no problem with them going back to an experienced player. But they are in a, I'm trying to think, what's the, what's the, the best? Uh, they're in a very unhealthy relationship with Shakib, right? And they have been for like forever, you know. Um, he's a difficult person for them. He, you know, he was a star at a young age. You know, he is one of the greatest all-rounders of his generation. But he's also been involved with match fixing. He's also pointed his groin on camera and done all these w random things all the way through um, that just don't, you know, line up with what they would want. But he's so talented and he's a really smart cricketer um, that I can see why they want him to lead the side. I don't think I have a problem with them making him captain for this World Cup, but I think you're right. I think pretty much almost straight away, I would be making a decision going ahead for them to start to look at the next generation. But I don't think this is an accident because, right? I think it is. They probably know their players better than we do. And they've probably been waiting for someone to come through, feel comfortable enough, be a natural leader, maybe, you know, want the job um, and be sure that they're going to be in the team. But that's not always easy. And it hasn't always been easy for Bangladesh. I'm not protecting the BCB here because it's, as you rightly point out, it's nuts. But I do understand how these things happen or why they happen, I should say. Philip says, if you're making an ODI squad but have to choose from T20 and test only specialists, how would you make up your team? Test specialist batting with T20 bowling lineup or vice versa? Some of the fun examples are a Jimmy Anderson-led attack defending a total set by Jason Roy, Dimith, Karuna Ratnik. I would have my best strike bowlers in test cricket with my best T20 batters because if you are a strike bowler in test cricket, chances are you're going to take some kind of wickets in, in T20. And uh, your your team should be making fairly fast scores as T20 specialists then. Um, and you you should at least be able to... So even if, you make, even if you make slightly less runs on overall, a lot of... Or even if you go out, get bowled out more often because you're going harder as a T20 batting lineup, I think you'll be in a situation there where you are still making some amount of runs and occasionally putting pressure back on the opposition. And then you bring in your strike bowlers and you have the ability to take wickets in, in one-day cricket all the way through with those kinds of bowlers. So I think that makes the best... I think that that's how I would do it. Because um, the opposite is you make mediocre totals and then you have T20 bowlers who are kind of defensive specialists, more by nature. Um, I don't think those two things match up. Bobbio says, which stat, oh, okay, which stat as, um, as is produces a better top list of all-time talent in your opinion, career average or career runs and wickets for batters and bowlers respectively, uh, i.e. average Bradman, Brook, Voges, 
versus total runs of Tadoka, Ponting, Callis. Um, I think it's very hard to make 10,000 runs or take 400 test wickets or 300 test wickets without being a fantastic player. I think it's a bit easier to have a brief period of time where you can have a great average. But if you're talking about over, you know, if you're talking about playing more than 50 test matches, then I would certainly take a lot more from average than I would total wickets or total runs. But in a short time frame, I think it's, you know, the consistency, you know, the ability to play that many games for your team and score that many runs and take that many wickets is very important. But once you get past the certain, certain threshold, if, uh, the Dan Vittori, right? I think Dan Vittori is a very good example of this. And well, I just talk about him as a bowler here. But if you look at Dan Vittori just purely as a bowler, let's have a look at his stats. He took 300 wickets and he had a bowling average of 34.36, right? 300 wickets puts him in, what, top 25, 30 test wicket takers of all time, um, somewhere around there. Um, and so it's a fantastic effort. But if you're taking those wickets at less than average, right? So the average during his career would have been, you know, somewhere around 32, 33. And he's taking his wickets less, um, uh, you know, at a worse average. It's hard to suddenly say that, you know, just because he took 300 wickets, he's a fantastic player. It's a fantastic player because he took 300 wickets. I get that. But if you're taking them at worse than average, doesn't that have to come in? And I think that tells us a lot. But yeah, I, I think you have to look at both. It, I don't think there is a, you know, a one stat fits all kind of thing for cricket anyway. And I, I, I don't think there is for any sport. So I think you're always better off looking at as multitudes of information as possible for any player. Ian says, well, listening to your discussion with Bayram about where Wales are independent from England and uh, was drawing comparisons with Scotland and Ireland. The difference that often gets overlooked is Glamorgan. Um, is Glamorgan. Wales has always had the opportunity to play first-class cricket where Scotland and Ireland never played in the, in the championship or had representatives. Um, in theory, if you could wind the clock back, would a Scottish and Irish county taking... Uh, uh, taking the total number of counties serves their cricket better or would... Uh, no Glamorgan have allowed Welsh cricket to have developed a stronger identity. I think no Glamorgan would have helped Welsh cricket have a stronger identity. But I think if all three teams had played in counter cricket, Scottish cricket and Irish cricket would be even better now than they are. Um, and Welsh cricket probably hasn't taken as much of an advantage from that. You know, you look at some of the Irish players who should have played in counter cricket from what, the, the 50s through to the 90s they had they had players who were first class caliber they had players who were probably fringe internationals that just didn't develop the way that they should have um because they didn't play enough cricket i'll say alec o'rawden i think is one of them um alan lewis is probably another one michael halliday played a little bit of first class cricket i think for derbyshire um they just didn't have a, their players just weren't playing enough cricket against high quality opposition and i think that stagnated irish development right if if I if Ireland had county team, I think they would have had a much stronger national team a long time ago, and I think exactly the same of Scotland. I think again, we know that there are enough club cricketers in Scotland, and we know that Scottish cricketers, you know, uh, Ian Peebles, um, uh, Dougie Brown, uh, Gavin Hamilton, these are proper players, right? Um, they all got good by being in county cricket. But how many Scottish players didn't 
get a chance to play counter cricket and then didn't develop. There is an argument for, of course, that once you go into county, do you just become a feeder league, uh, team for England? I think that's also fair. But I think right now that I, I, I think right now that if those Scottish and Irish teams had played in county cricket, they would be better international sides than they are. And I could see the counter argument that especially, you know, the Welsh people who want independent cricket would make, which is if we have a team on our own, we'd have to develop our own talent and everything else. I completely understand that. Very hard to develop your own talent if you don't have a strong local playing pool already. And from my knowledge, Scottish club cricket is a lot stronger than Welsh club cricket over a long period of time. A lot more players over there as well, unless I'm mistaken. But that's not what I've heard. And so from that, um, I think that, uh, that they are probably been better off to have that. But I also get the idea of, you know, what is the, why would Welsh, the Welsh government push their cricketers to be better if they're just going to play for the England team, right? It's the England and Wales cricket board, right? And, the, and Wales is silent. Ben says, Broad is clearly one of the best all-rounders of all time, bowling and comedy. <laughs> Nice one, Ben. How do you think you go as a commentator? Look, I've got high hopes for him as a commentator, but I've had high hopes for a lot of people as commentators, and it hasn't worked out. I've, I said this before. I think the best player turned commentator of recent times was Shane Watson, and I had no hopes for Shane Watson, and he was absolutely brilliant at commentary. Dale Stane, I thought, would be much better at commentary. I think he's really good at podcasts and and, and chats, but probably commentary hasn't quite come to him as naturally. So. I, and I always go on the, you know, the Mark Taylor, Ricky Ponting one. Who would have thought that Mark Taylor would not be as good a commentator as Ricky Ponting based on everything we knew about them as players? So I can never quite work out who's going to become a good commentator based on them as cricketers. If I know them as per- people, that's a little bit different. And I don't know Brody well enough. I would say that I'd be shocked if Ashwin and Broad can't be good commentators. But I don't want to stake my reputation on it. Cam says, do you prefer regional qualification tournaments or a final global qualification tournament as the pathway for World Cups? I think as the game gets more, um, bi- you know, bigger around the world, I like the idea of regional qualification um, tournaments. I think you have to keep an eye on it. You know, we've always seen the old, um, you know, Australia, when Australia, uh, the Australian soccer team used to qualify for World Cups just because they had a spot. Um, it was a bit ridiculous. So you, ha- you have to keep an eye on it. Um, but I do, I do think that ov- overall, um, this is a better way of, of, of getting teams into World Cups. I think, yeah, I think I would, I would agree with that. Uh, Mystic Referee says, let's consider that there's actually bowlers who move the game in Test Cricket. Let's consider that it's actually bowlers who move the game in Test Cricket. Cr- agreed. If people really love attacking cricket, then Mitchell Stark um, has been doing the bowling version of baseball forever. I know it's a team strategy. So what about an entire bowling attack that attacks all day with enough slips and lots of balls targeting the stumps. What we saw in the ashes uh, with the bouncer barrage. To achieve this, I wonder if the pedigree as a bowling attack should be higher than a batting lineup doing the same. So, I mean, what you're talking about is 1999 to 2005 Australia, right? Warren probably slightly more defensive fields. Um, he didn't over-attack as a spinner, but McGrath and Fleming and Gillespie and Lee, four, five slips and doing that. So we've seen it before. You need those kinds of bowlers. It doesn't work for anyone. I don't think over-attacking, for instance, Pat Cummins is a very good strike bowler. I don't think him having the extra slips is the way he likes to bowl, whereas Rabada does. And I do think that you have to factor in the, you know, the bowler and the style and everything else from that perspective. Um, 
but yeah, it, I think it does go back to sort of 90s theory of if you put a bunch of slips in, eventually someone's going to edge the ball. I don't think Mitchell Stark is really as... Uh, I don't think Mitchell Stark attacks the stumps as much as you think he does. Yeah, I I think the... Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. But yes, I do agree with you in general if you had that. But if you have four strike bowlers who are all going to take wickets at an above average rate, you would do that. Finding one of them is pretty hard. Finding two is almost impossible. Finding four, you're talking about the Great West Indies or the Great Australian teams, so the two best teams of all time. It's just not a thing most teams will ever find. Christopher says, what role do you think AI could play in cricket? Um, assuming you mean artificial intelligence and not Alan Iverson. Um, I think the more data that we collect on cricket, that you know, AI obviously plays a role in the creative way of being able to use that, filter through it, uh, a lot quicker, look for patterns, uh, all those sorts of things. I think AI will, pl- it, you know, you might be able to play a part in um, preparing teams, uh, you know, using the bowling machine, the, you know, the latest uh, information of bowling machines. We should be able to tell you exactly what kind of a spell a bowler will bowl on different surfaces that you can then replicate with a bowling machine, which isn't quite the same. Um, but that is one thing I would do. But I think it's mostly just about the data and about the information and how quickly we can collate it all and use it all. Um, but I haven't thought about that one before, Christopher. It's a really good question. But yeah, that off the top of my head, that's where I would think. But I'm sure there are, you know, I, I think fan engagement is a huge one. And um, I believe there's a lot more cricket fans out there that aren't being monetized and targeted and excited and all these sorts of things. And the AI would probably be able to prove that. Emron says, uh, what are your favorite portrayals of cricket in movies and TV? Obviously, I think the Bluey Cricket episode is great. Um, I've always been partial to the 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, that is Casey Jones um, and the whole line about Raphael Cricket and a crumpet and all that is absolutely brilliant. Um, There's an episode of, I want to say it's How I Met Your Mother, um, where... I think the Doogie Howser character, so I don't really know how I met your mother, but I saw this once, the Doogie Howser character is getting bowled out by like his assistant or something, which I always thought was really good. There's, um, oh my God, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, the guy, the Marvel superhero uh, um, uh, guy, the comedic actor in the movie that he writes about him and his wife getting together. Um, he does some stand-up about cricket, which is actually quite funny because I think he gets something intentionally wrong on purpose just for cricket fans, which I really, really enjoyed. Obviously, if you haven't seen my entire Aaron Sorkin video, it is worth going and having a look at it. Um, what else do I like about cricket? Oh, the, the when, um, when oh my God, what's his... The, uh, the two Adam Sandler films that have cricket bats in them, obviously Dale Stain being in in the first Adam Sandler film, and then there's the one where um, Jan, uh, uh, Juancho Herman Gomez, who oh, I've forgotten his name in the movie, but Bo Cruz has a cricket bat and attacks Adam Sandler with a cricket bat. Um, another, that's another classic. There's one of my favorite bits ever is, the, and this isn't quite a movie or a TV show, but it's Vincent Price explaining cricket using horror props is one of the best things I've ever seen ever about anything um i like the um cricket slash baseball slash bat trap um scene in um fantastic mr fox huge fan of that scene um what other cricket stuff is there out there i've got a whole list of them um i collected them for years i just haven't had a chance to 
bring them all together and make a video on them. Uh, the Aaron Silgan one was um, a little bit more in my focus. But yeah, uh, eventually we'll get to them. But those are the ones. The Casey Jones one is huge for me. I'm trying to think of some of the other. There's, yeah, I, you know, um, there's the Bodyline series, of course, Lagan. Um, there's another one I'm thinking of. There's an old film that has it as a background in a really, really clever way. Um, but yeah, there's heaps of it out there. My favorite ones are when it's in an American context because it's so alien in that context. If it's an English movie or an Australian movie or a New Zealand movie or Indian or it's not as alien, right? But I love it when it's in a really, really fought, you know, American context and they're not even sure how to do it correctly. I think that's what I really like about the Aaron Sorkin ones because they're very honest with not knowing anything about cricket, but cricket's still there. They're still appreciating, like Aaron Sorkin as a writer, understands that cricket is a big deal but also that it's a, a it's a punchline but there's more to it than that it's a really fascinating way of doing it and i think that's what i also like about the the casey jones one as well there's some there's a little bit of extra writing there um and um that's what i appreciate about that but yeah that I've, I've got a list somewhere what emron so one day i'll go through them all Ben says, we have more fast bowlers than ever, athleticism, sports science, coaching, but I don't know if we are seeing a higher top speed. Could we have already seen the theoretical top speed a human can produce? If not, how fast do you think it could be? Uh, I think I think that the modern speed guns are a lot more accurate. And Mark Wood is probably, Mark Wood or Unric Nilke are probably the fastest bowlers we've ever had. Sorry, Brett Lee and Shelvactar. And I'm, you know, I saw all those guys and I saw Mark Wood. I'm just not sure that I felt that they were any quicker than Mark Wood. Um, but the bottom end speed has certainly got a lot, lot quicker, right? You know, we've gone from having a handful of guys who can bowl 90 miles an hour to there were probably 100 people in the world at the moment who if you gave them a ball and told them to bowl 90 miles an hour, they could. We've never been in a position before. So I do understand your theoretical top speed. I still think we can get slightly faster based on... I think the consistency of speed that Unwritten Nokia and Mark Wood specifically have bowled with, which suggests to me that as we grow the game, we're going to find more and more athletes who have the ability to do that, which will be matched with the sports science. And I also think with T20 cricket, there'll be more of a reason to bowl that fast. And so I do think we'll see a generation of bowlers. It may not be a lot of them, but I think we'll see a generation of bowlers who can bowl regularly 95 to 100 miles an hour um, in the way that Mark Wood and Unwritten Nokia do at the moment between what 92 and 95 or 96 wherever they're, they're both at um but this is all out, out of my ass ben if we're being honest nadika says if we are considering the careers across formats would chris wokes and and or moeen ali rank above uh andrew flintoff in the pantheon of england or rounders across formats oh i don't know if i can get my head f- i wasn't flintoff one of the best odi bowlers in the world I'm going to have to look that up um, because I had a feeling that I looked this up recently and he was a shockingly good one-day bowler. Let's have a look here. One-day cricket. He had a bowling average of 24 and an economy rate of 4.4. 4. Uh, and in test cricket, he had a bowling average of 31. Uh, uh, sorry, that's batting. Test cricket had a bowling average of 32. I'd still pick Flintoff over either of those two players. I understand when you talk about longevity um, and how good they were, but I think if you put Flintoff into this side right now, 
if you put Flintoff into almost any of those sides when he had, you know, any physicality left in his body at all, any athleticism left in his body, he's a much he's a better bat than Moinelli and a better bowler than Moinelli. And he's a better bat than Chris Wokes and a better bowler than uh, Chris Wokes. And I don't think there's anything. I've, I think there are certain conditions. Obviously, when it's spinning, you prefer to have Moinelli, and when it's a, you know, a green seamer, you prefer to have Chris Wokes. But pitch for pitch, all around the world, I think Flintoff was a better player. I will give you the fact that he, he was kind of a peak player. You know, he had incredible peaks, and maybe some other times he wasn't as good. Um, but I think if you're considering across formats, I would certainly. I think in I uh, forget T20 because he didn't play the much of it. But I think if you're thinking one day cricket and um, test cricket, I would certainly pick Flintoff above both those players. But I also think it's a very good, I think it's a very fair thing to bring up. Madden says, is there an explanation to Syria's difference in form between ODIs and T20s? It's so hard not to pick him in the ODI squad. Um, yeah, so I've talked about this quite a bit, but the, the best example of this was recently when England played a bunch of one-dayers in South Africa. And Joss Butler said, we have to relearn how to play one-day cricket because they hadn't been playing it, right? And you, you know, I always bring up Nicholas Puran who said the same thing to me. He didn't know how to play one-day cricket because he hadn't played one-day cricket. It is different. It does have different skills. You know, there are different ways that you have to, you know, get good and all these different parts of it that exist. Uh, once you get past the score of 40, which you don't do very often in T20 cricket. And if you get past the score of 40 in T20 cricket, you're hitting out. That's very rare in one-day cricket. So it is very, very different from that point of view. And, I mean, you would, I'd have to look up uh, his, his full record of just how many list A games he has played. He played 128. So it's hard to argue that he doesn't have it. I would say, and there's no Indian fan who wants to hear this, but I would say it's a fluke that he's struggled so much in ODI cricket so far. Because if you look at his list A record, he averages 34 with a strike rate of 103. And if you look at his ODI record, he averages 24. He should be averaging 28 to 31. Um, and I think if he played another 26 games, he would probably end up averaging that. I don't know how many people want to hear that sort of stuff, but that's kind of how these things work. There's the, if, if he's played enough one-day cricket, or the, the only thing I would say is I'd love to go back and see when he stops playing one-day cricket because that goes back to that Josh Butler kind of thing. So it's more of a Josh Butler situation than it is a Nicholas Puran. But there is a different tempo, and it is hard to go between the two for certain players. And a lot of players now don't play a lot of one-day cricket. And so when they do, it's quite often warming up for a World Cup or playing at a World Cup, and it's not an ideal situation to be in. Um, you know, it's very different than the old days. And I know it's something that England have talked about a lot of how do you handle the fact that you're, you're a whole gener you want to win all these one day world cups, but none of your players play one day cricket anymore. And I think it's a very fair question to ask. And I think that I don't think there's any reason why Syria Kumar wouldn't be good in one day cricket based on everything I've seen from him. All right, that's the end of the Patreon. I'll take a quick break here and I'll go through the, uh, what do you call this thing? The, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go through the um, uh, um, chat room to see if there's, that's, that's what I was looking for, isn't it? Uh, but this is Wagon Wheel and I'm Jared Kimber. I'll be back in just a few moments. All right, welcome back. Uh, Inferno sent through a super chat, which it's always easy to read when I put it on the screen. Uh, a 240p clip of Akhtar's Yorkers to Dravid and Tadulka has 5.3 million views. The BCCI don't upload 
upload vintage clips to YouTube or BCCI TV? Do they hate money? I don't think for BCCI, they are, it's going to make a huge difference the amount of money they make. I don't think 5.3 million views is going to make a huge amount. But I do think it's idiotic and it's stupid. And again, it's a way of ripping off the fans, right? And then if you put that video up, they will take it back down if, if their copyright lawyers come up across it. I think it's really poor and it's stupid and it's short-sighted. And there are many different cricket boards who do it and they do it for many different reasons. I think if the West Indies cricket board think that they're going to make millions and millions of dollars, well, actually, they're a bad example, but they want to have a YouTube channel, I think that's fine. But you can actually, there are ways of doing it where you allow people to upload stuff where you are the ones who can still monetize it, which is what the NBA do. That's really what cricket boards should be doing. And the other way of doing it is you're not even to worry about that and just go, it's all promotion for our game. It's all promotion for whoever we've signed a deal with. You want to watch this cricket, you still have to sign up for this service or um, get this cell phone or you know become a Sky subscriber, whatever that may be. So I'd, in the BCCI's case, I don't think the 5.3 million views is going to make them enough money that they're going to care about. But the next generation is coming up on YouTube and they're seeing highlights of Premier League footballers and NFL players and baseballers and rugby players and all these other sports that have so many more clips online than cricket does. Why would you do that to yourself as a sport? Why would you alienate yourself from the next generation for something that doesn't even, it, it's, it's just, it's pointless, right? It's such a stupid way of doing it. So yeah, from that point of view, but you're right. Inferno, if they had, I don't know, a proper archivist, um, uh, what's, what's it called? Desi Robelinda, I forget his proper name. Is it Mashank? I've forgotten his name. But you get a proper archivist up there to work f for you, you know, and you get a team of editors behind him. There's nothing they can't do and they can completely take it over. Cr Cricket.com.au has a lot of good stuff. It's still nowhere near what I would want. They have a lot of good stuff on there and most of the other boards don't. And it's stupid. Shrikant says, the best batting lineup for the subcontinent ever. Oh. Sewag, Hayden, Lara, Barrington, Darren Lehman uh, with the substitute of Don Bradman. Um, so you don't have Gavaskar in that. You don't have Mahela or Kumar in that. I think I'd have Mahela or Kumar ahead of Darren Lehman. <laughs> with, with all due respects to Buff, um, I think they, uh, they'd probably go in ahead of him. Uh, Yunus Khan is probably another one as well. Barrington, I'd have to have a look at his record. Um, but I would have thought that I would have preferred Eunice to one of them. Uh, you don't have Sachin, you'd have Dravid. Yeah, maybe that makes sense. Um, but yeah, Gavaskar, I would have thought goes ahead of Hayden. I mean, Hayden's record is how much of it is based on like kind of one series in India where he did really well. He went back there twice, right? Like, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to look it up because now I'm fascinated. But I, I don't remember Hayden as being this absolutely, all right, in Asia, the average is 50. So very, very good. Can't blame that. 1,600 runs. Overall in India, he averaged 51. And that's pretty much all from one series where he averaged a million. Averages 40 in Sri Lanka. Uh, played well in the two games he played in the UAE. Didn't play in Pakistan. Yeah. I'm finding it hard to take him over Mahela. Oh, sorry, over Gavaskar. Um, unless you just want more attacking players. Um, but it's a great question, Srikanth. Uh, thank you. And thank you very much for spending your money to ask me a great question because that's the best kind of question. I win twice. Um, well, I didn't even get into the Bradman side of it, which would have been fascinating. Uh, 
Are, are standard question, are the BBL and T20 in the UK going to be privatized? If not, how will they compete with other richer leagues? They will be privatized. Yes. When, how, et cetera, I couldn't tell you, but eventually they will be. They've already had conversations. Obviously, IPL teams have already tried to buy 100 teams. Um, I don't know if we've ever quite got to that point with the Big Bash, but there's certainly been, you know, people have asked about uh, buying Big Bash teams before. Uh, it will happen if uh, one way or another. Because either eventually franchise leagues will take over everything and so Cricket Australia won't have a choice. They might be the last holdouts, by the way. They just won't have a choice. Um, or they'll just decide that it's silly for them not to do it anyway and they'll go in when everyone else does it. Um, and I, I would assume that English cricket will have it um, sooner rather than later, especially as English. So Australian sport is a little bit different. We don't have a lot of team owners in Australian sport. It's not run the same way that a lot of other sports around the world, you know, so you don't, you don't even have the sort of, you know, the Srinivasan type, um, uh, teams, but you also don't have the American franchise type teams or the football club type owners or anything. A lot of Australian sport is run by a collective. And so it is a little bit different. So you would expect it from that point of view to perhaps be a bigger holdout um, than everyone else. Plus they're control freaks. Cricket Australia. Uh, Henry says, for some reason, I can't stop thinking about spinners bowling bounces. Root does it and uh, I think Shane Warne did it too. He did. Is it actually scary to face? Is it a good option? Why don't you do it more? So I do it. And it doesn't really work because in order to bowl a bouncer as a spinner, you kind of have to telegraph it a little bit beforehand. So it's not particularly that surprising i remember i got a wicket with it once and got a bit obsessed with it and never got another wicket with it ever again after that um i think on certain days it's worth doing just as a thing especially if the wicket does have a little bit of bounce in it but because it's telegraphed they're going to see it coming um and there are very few spinners who have the ability to get a bouncer in at over 125 130 kilometers an hour and if you're not doing it above that speed it's probably not really going to you know, take anyone. You also don't have the field set up completely well for it or anything else. More often than not, in a test match, someone's just going to leave it. Uh, I can't see it ever catching on to a point where in a six-over spell in a test match, any spinner would ever bowl them. I would bowl one of them, I should say. But I can see it catching on to a point where on certain wickets, in certain situations, it is a good variation ball, um, at least to make the batter think a little bit differently. I think that's why Warren used to do it. I think with 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 Root, it's more just he tries everything, right? You know, I think if Sachin had bowled more, I don't know how quick Sachin's arm was, so he might not have been able to do it particularly well. But I think if Sachin had bowled more um, spin, he probably would have done it more as well. Um trying to think did a freedy bowl them occasionally as well maybe kumble so they're there but it doesn't work right it doesn't really do what it's supposed to do because it's so slow right if you start to get to the point where some wrist spinners are bowling at you know 95 to 105 kilometers an hour which means they have incredibly fast arm speed perhaps some of them will be more um, able to bowl a bouncer that is decent because if you think about it if you did have the ability to hide it and bowl it at 135 kilometers an hour, say, you've actually got close fielders around. And if you do surprise them a little bit, they might jump up and just pop it up in the air, even if they're not scared by it, just by the shock of it happening to them. But I don't think it'll ever be a major part of cricket. And Mole says, do you think Rishabh Pant will be the best test wicketkeeper batter in history? I mean, based on his accident at the moment, I'm more worried about him coming back and being the player that he used to be. So no. I think he's a flawed batter, but might be suited by the situation that he comes into and the way that Test cricket is played at the moment. I, th I think he's going to struggle to average anywhere near where Andy Flower or Adam Gilchrist did, though, because you're talking about you're talking about him averaging well over fifty now for the rest of his career to be able to get to that mark. 
I think that's a big, big stretch. But I think since Matt Pryor, he's the one I would say has the best chance of doing it. So I do think there is a chance, but I don't see it happening. I also have this theory that wicket keepers, and I've, I've never actually done this, I might have to look this up, but I've got this theory that wicket keepers tail off a little bit more towards the back end of their career just because of you know the, the stress that they put on them, you know, their knees, their ankles, their back, their hamstrings. And so that if you look at a lot of wicket keepers towards the end of the career, there's a starker tailing off of their batting than there often is with top order batters. Um, so it certainly happened with Pryor, certainly happened with Ian Healy, certainly happened with Adam Gilchrist. Um, those are just off the top of my head of players who just by the end of their career couldn't bat the way that they wanted to anymore. And if that's the case, if Rishabh, let's say Rishabh Pant is averages 52 for the next six years when he comes back. But then he is averaging 35 for the next three years after that um, because he's still Rashad Pant and he can still win new games and he's still a very good wicketkeeper, right? I'm, I'm just assuming all these things. Then his, his overall mark will drop again. And I think that does happen quite a bit with, uh, with wicketkeepers um, because they, and maybe it's because they stay in the team a little bit longer because they have a second skill. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. But yeah, I'd, I'd be shocked if that was the case. Grizzly Hand says, Sean Tate, 160 was fairly recent. It was, but it was a, there's a lot of changes in um, the way that we detect the speed of balls since Akhtar, Lee, and Tate, you know, in, let's say 2012, 2014. There's been a lot of changes in the way that, you know, the, the records are kept. We have, now we discount the fluke balls. So there's that ball that Akhtar bowled in the 2011 World Cup, which we know he wasn't at 163 kilometers an hour. Now, uh, you know, Hawkeye are very good at just flicking those balls away, um, as are the, some of the other people who do um, all that sort of technology. The ball is tracked all the way through all these different things that we know. I trust the speeds now more than I have before. Also, a lot of those other speeds, because Hawkeye is involved, I would say that it's much less likely for people to boost individual numbers. Whereas before, there was a lot of boosting. Now, there's still, you know, Adam Collins talks about the sky tax of, you know, every bowler's five kilometers quicker when they bowl on sky than anywhere else. I don't know if that's true or, you know, but it is something that is talked about within cricket. But I think if you go back a few years, I think there was a few bumping up the numbers at certain times. If someone looked like they were bowling fast, suddenly the, you know, those sorts of things would happen. Um, I just find it hard to believe that we're not in a faster bowling era now than we ever have been before. And I certainly don't think we've reached the peak of, of speed um, when it comes to what, what bowlers can do, considering we haven't even opened up you know, the majority of the world yet. Um, huge thanks to everyone, especially the Super Chats, but everyone who put, puts a chat in, as I said, it helps with uh, everything else. We're, we've obviously got this new podcast channel, which in probably in a couple of weeks now, uh, when, when I get some time, we'll move over there um, 100%. And that will be where all these lives will be recorded. Um, so if you're not already following the Jared Kimber um, podcast channel, please go over and find that now. But huge thanks to everyone. Um, again, plenty of good content. Uh, some big videos coming out. with the Slightly fewer videos. So we'll probably be looking at a couple of weeks um, so that we can prepare for the World Cup and have everything ready um, for that period as well. But they will be... The, the, I'm hoping some absolute banger videos are coming out as well. You know, some, some projects I've been working on for a very, very long time. But as I said, thank you very much to everyone who was in the chat today and in the group and everyone who shares and does all those things that help us out on this channel. You know, we're talking to some new sponsors and there's some, you know, hopefully as a, the more support we get, the more shows that we can come up with. We've got a really cool little podcast that I want to start um, very shortly, um, which I'm sure that most of you will enjoy. But for now, I will leave you with an ad and I will see you again next time.
Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Saina Paye and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Tired of editing your podcasts and videos because you are as lazy as me? Well, try using Memento FM, an AI-based service that cuts and dices, so all you have to do is hit post. Try Memento FM today. Podcast Network. If you're updating your closet for summer, you need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23.